0: Kind of the That's the and the- Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, uh, here by myself because Derek is still on vacation. And I'm very happy to be joined by Jamie Martin, forthcoming at Harvard University's History Department and Social Studies, I believe, right, Jamie? That's right. That's right. And author of the excellent recently released The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance, also released by Harvard University Press. It's a Harvard episode today, folks. But Jamie, thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we just get into it? Because this is a really interesting book. And it it's about basically the birth of, of what you title in the subtitle, global economic governance, and the way that new types of institutions new forms of governance arose in the period after World War One in terms of managing this thing that, as as you note, called the global economy, which is itself a, a type of, you know, fiction that was created in this period that you study the interwar period. So before we get into that, I was just wondering, why did you decide to focus on this particular topic? What appealed to you about studying the origins of global economic governance? And in particular, what did you think that people misunderstood about global economic governance that that you wanted to, you know, as it were correct?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that I probably, it would be fair to say that I came to the topic um, in the aftermath or the kind of ongoing um, uh, destruction of the 2008 financial crisis when so many of my peers and I were turning to questions of political economy and trying to kind of radically rethink uh, how we understood the history of of modern political economy. Um, At the same time, at that moment, uh, as I was beginning my PhD, I was actually more focused on questions in intellectual history and then ultimately international history. So, you know, one way that kind of as my research developed, one way of kind of combining these interests Seemed to be to investigate the history of, you know, as, as, as I put it here, global economic governance. And as I began to work on this topic, I realized that there was quite a, you know, a common history or a common story about the rise of institutions of global economic governance that had acquired a kind of a mythological status, right? That sees this story as really beginning during the Second World War, during the famous uh, Bretton Woods Conference of 1944. You know, when the, when the United States kind of triumphantly arrived on the, onto the world stage, ready to take on more burdens than ever before globally. And, you know, through this kind of series of fraught negotiations with a declining British empire, created this new international monetary system, created the IMF and the World Bank, which obviously continue to exist to this day. So this was kind of, you know, this is how the story was told pretty much entirely. Um, and, Obviously, there's a lot that's true about this story, right? I mean, in its kind of basic rudiments, this is indeed how things played out. But as I began to kind of, you know, scratch around the surface and also to engage with new literature on particularly the League of Nations, it became apparent that uh, this was not the beginning, right? That the Second World War um, was not the moment that this project of attempting to govern uh, global capitalism internationally began. It actually began um, quite a few years before this point.
0: So that's really interesting. So um, basically, I think just to reiterate what you said, the general story is that really global economic governance gets going after World War II with the Bretton Woods system, which I would argue is basically, if not totally, you know, um, not quite a function, but it's definitely connected to the rise of American global imperial power, absolutely military power, and and what you know um, people call armed. Primacy. So let me just play devil's advocate here. You know, so Jamie, the things you're studying, the League of Nations, yeah, there were in these institutional antecedents. Yeah, you know, you see these attempts, but they really didn't come to much. Um, so what would you say to that potential uh, criticism?
1: Well, I'd say a few things. Um, first, I'd say that studying antecedents and studying models is significant in its own right. I mean, obviously, you know, as historians, we're inclined to look for foundations, right? For, to look for what made condition, the conditions of possibility for major institutional innovation. And, uh, seen in that way, right? We shouldn't worry about, or we shouldn't look for the origins of the IMF in just the kind of, two or so year span in which negotiations for it were being hashed out, right, from roughly 1941 to 1943, 1944, right, it would be silly. I mean, we wouldn't look at other institutions as just having a kind of a two-year run-up, right? Also, I think that it's important to emphasize that these earlier institutions actually did do a lot of things. Certainly the League of Nations in the financial realm, um, this was one of the, the, the places where the League actually developed extraordinary powers, of course, the League has kind of gone down in history as this embarrassing failure. It, you know, did not succeed in preventing the coming of another world war, so on and so forth. Um, but in various technical realms, the League developed quite muscular powers. and That's certainly the case in the financial realm. So studying it again, uh, uh, you know, we shouldn't. Uh, we should be very cautious to think that simply what came before were a series of failed experiments. It's actually a, a great degree of continuity between these earlier contexts and what we would come to see as the kind of, you know, post-45 institutions of global economic governance.
0: And then let me ask my final uh, a devil's advocate question. So, there was a turn, you know, you and I entered graduate school around the same time in the late 2000s, and we really are are the children of the transnational and international turns. Um, and there's recently been criticisms of these turns. You know, in my own field, I made a criticism very, you know, sort of narrowly construed towards specifically U.S. foreign policy. But, you know, there's been criticisms of this type of approach as, you know, um, have you – tell me if you've heard this one, the, the history of the Davos elite. Have you heard that one? For sure. Yeah 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 <laughs> for and sure it, and and you know especially emanating I mean you yourself were trained at Harvard you know the the critique being that when you're at these hyper elite institutions you have a, a fair bit of money you're able to travel around the world you know the classic i i went to 25 archives in, in, and yeah. in, and Seventeen continents and eighteen countries, um, and that this actually uh, th- that that this actually obscures the real history of the twentieth century. Which you know, um, whether you, whether you like it or not, and I, I think you and I are probably politico, uh, politically politically uh, in agreement about this. You know, uh, we prefer it was otherwise, but it's really uh, the twentieth century is still the century of the nation state. Yeah. Oftentimes, you know, with with various internationalist, um, you know, proclivities or or gestures, but you know, ultimately, the macro narrative of the 20th century is about the rise of the United States to effectively unipolarity. That's not no longer true in 2022, I don't think, but I, I do think it is true for much of you know the the final two thirds of the 20th century. Um, so, how would you address that particular? criticism or, or how does your work fit in with what I would say is the empirical reality that, you know, if we're examining the most fundamental yeah. causal structures of the 20th century, we're still living in a world of nation states, regardless of what, you know, the 90s era of globalization might have had people believe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would also say that we're looking at a world of empires, right? Um, certainly the 20th century is a period of ongoing uh, uh, of persistence of empire sometimes in very old forms, sometimes in new forms. And so what I try to do in the book is really to show how, the, as these international institutions were being created uh, in the first half of the 20th century, they attempted in many ways to essentially repackage and repurpose old tools of informal empire um, uh, for a new era um, of self-determination, of growing democratization, given the kind of transforming um, relationships and power um, around the world, certainly to accommodate the rise of the United States and so on and so forth. So I really don't see telling the history of international institutions as somehow being necessarily in tension with telling a story about the rise of American primacy, for example, or about the transformation of empire. Instead, one of the things I really try to do throughout the book is to show just how useful these new international institutions proved to various new ways of projecting power both in terms of uh, the power of private actors, financial institutions, but also of powerful states um, and empires. I think that there was a tendency when the history of international institutions first became a very popular topic, um, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago or so, to, you know, uh, uh, research the history of these institutions insofar as they fit into narratives about peacekeeping about post-war reconstruction yeah. humanitarianism and that was all you know, that was all good. but I think that there's kind of a new turn in the literature to also look at how these institutions have um, at key moments actually been quite muscular right that they have been able to effectively deploy coercive powers in certain cases. Um, certainly someone like Nick Mulder's new book about the economic weapon, right? I mean, in many ways, that's a story, that's a kind of retelling of the history of the League of Nations to look at how the League tried to develop, you know, something that was effectively the equivalent of of military power um, in the economic realm. So I'd say that I and, you know, other people as well are kind of trying to rethink uh, the history of international institutions um, in this way. So why don't we
0: now we get let, let's get into the book itself, which I really really um, commend. It's incredibly interesting, and I think proves exactly the point you just made about these institutions, particularly in the interwar inter- period, actually having coercive power. But so your book focuses really on the period after World War One. But before we do that, why don't you set the scene? Because there's been so much work on this in the 19th century, and the early 20th centuries, in the pre-World War One period, so so people could understand what actually changed in the moment that you focus on in The Meddlers.
1: Yeah, so I think there's kind of two really key contexts to highlight um, of the era before the First World War. Um, One of these contexts is that this was a period of enormous uh, global economic dynamism. Um, You know, historians and social scientists have come to refer to the, you know, three or so decades um three plus decades before the outbreak of the first world war is the so-called first wave of globalization right and then people argue about well maybe you know there was another wave before or you know whatever but nonetheless i think there's you know a broad consensus that this was a period of time that saw um uh, enormous global economic integration the lowering of tariffs in many places beginning in the in the mid century the expansion of the gold standard obviously european uh, imperial expansion technological innovations that greased the wheel of global commerce, and so on and so forth. So in many ways, this this was a world in which global commerce was becoming uh, much more vibrant. The total volume of global trade was growing exponentially. This was also obviously a period of time in which empire was expanding, in which forms of empire were transforming. And I think the context here that's particularly relevant for the story that I tell focuses less on kind of colonial empire and more on the various forms of informal empire that were developed during this period. So by informal empire, uh, you know, I'm referring to ways in which, uh, both, uh, state and private actors effectively were able to kind of reach into the domestic realms of formally sovereign states and to exercise a high degree of influence over what went on. Um, So in places like China, this involved the removal of China's ability to set its tariff levels. In places like Tunis and Egypt and the Ottoman Empire, this involved the creation of foreign-run debt commissions to essentially kind of take control over sources of public revenue, in some cases uh, kind of take control over public finance to ensure that debtors were repaid. So really, the First World War is significant for both of these contexts in two ways. First, uh, the First World War has kind of traditionally been seen or long been seen as throwing this first wave of globalization into profound turmoil, right? This kind of Edwardian era of trade uh, is thrown into crisis with the erection of the wartime blockades, with the suspension of the gold standard. And after the First World War, you see this kind of concerted, broad-based attempt to restore something that at least roughly looked like the world economy that had come before the First World War. Now, recently, historians have been pushing back on this narrative saying, like, you know, look, globalization didn't collapse entirely. Um, the world economy remained uh, vibrant. Trade actually increased between some regions of the world. Um, but nonetheless, again, I think there's kind of certainly uh, little disputing the fact that the First World War was a profound shock to the world economy. And uh, the other thing is that obviously, the aftermath of the First World War was a period of profound transformation in the international order, that saw the rise of movements around the world for self determination, and uh, in which empires were, you know, attempting to kind of redefine their roles, at least in certain cases, um, how would they respond, to this new world order. So what it kind of the, you know, the backdrop to the book in many ways is to look at this period um, in light of these two contexts and really try to figure out, okay, at this moment, if you're trying to govern the world economy, how do you do so in ways that kind of takes account of these two things, right? That tries to put together the world economy in some order that had existed before the war um, and that does so in subtly different ways, right? Because the major power brokers here are obviously still, all empires, right?
0: That's really interesting because one, if you go back to the 1920s, and if you're reading, you know, what the Germans and the French and the English are saying, one one of their laments, um, particularly related to the rise of mass politics, is that there's no longer this um, international community of people who are able to talk to each other, and they're really talking about aristocrats, right? You know, the various cousins are no longer able to talk to each other and, and engage in diplomatic exchange. But what you essentially trace in your book is sort of the rise of a new technocracy, the rise of, in a sense, a a proto-meritocracy, which I don't think really takes off until the mid-century, but of people who are going to manage this new thing that is being identified called the global economy. So, what were some of the major problems that people identified in 1919 in the wake of World War One that they felt needed to be managed in a meaningful sense? And another thing that I wanted to ask, which is related to that, is one of your major points is that your actors in the book, oftentimes, you know, the people you examine were, uh, they, they were politically varied, you know, you have hardcore capitalists, but you also have, you know, a a soft socialist. So what were the general views of capitalism? And what were the problems that they identified that needed to be managed in a meaningful way?
1: Yeah. So in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, obviously, this is a period of enormous global economic turmoil. In 1919, the world is undergoing a profound kind of global inflationary crisis. So one of the first things to be done kind of coming out of the war is to try to address this crisis, right? To try to get countries to kind of put their financial houses back in order to arrest inflation, to return them to sound or what were seen to be kind of sound uh, fiscal practices. Uh, to remove central banks from the kind of government control that they'd been put under during the First World War. And this seems to be a project that is amenable to what, as you described it, is kind of this emerging internationalist technocratic elite, right? They can hold conferences, they can kind of uh, use new international venues like the League of Nations to try to encourage states to, you know, kind of get their financial houses in order, in large part to arrest this galloping inflation. Another problem, obviously, is the question of trade, right? How do you get countries to return to conditions in which something like free trade can flourish? Another problem uh, has to do with the global distribution and exchange of commodities, of raw materials and foodstuffs. I mean, one of the things that the First World War had demonstrated um, brutally was that those countries that had access to uh, material goods like coal or tin or rubber or what have you were able to prosecute the war more effectively, right? So after the war, the question becomes, for some countries, for those countries that are looking to rebuild themselves, how do we guarantee access to these materials, a country like Italy, which had suffered from profound shortages during the war, how could a country like Italy use new international institutions to, you know, ensure access to these materials? But on the other hand, um, how could new international institutions effectively institutionalize a way of cutting off countries from these vital raw materials as well? So there's a kind of a multiplicity of issues. But The kind of issue that really wins out um, in the early 1920s, certainly from the vantage point of this new internationalist technocratic elite, is financial stabilization. Trade is too politically toxic to really deal with in any meaningful sense. Um, This question of kind of ensuring an equitable supply of commodities, you know, it's too kind of, you know, socialistic ultimately for countries like the United States to sign up to, but dealing with financial instability actually becomes something that the League of Nations uh, develops um, uh, uh, quite extraordinary uh, powers to deal with in the early 1920s.
0: Before we get into precisely what the League did, could you maybe talk a little bit about this sort of interesting transition that you chart in your book which is that previously there had been attempts to do these sorts of global economic governance s- schemes um, for lack of a better phrase in in peripheral or semi-peripheral or colonized or semi-colonized countries and and that does that change in the 1920s when people are focusing on a place like Germany like how does that fit into you know sort of the imagination of the quote unquote west?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, one thing that, that I get into a lot in the book is how these institutions that had been created in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in North Africa, in the Caribbean, um, on the Ottoman Empire and China and elsewhere, particularly these these commissions that had been set up to kind of deal with questions of sovereign debt to ensure that debtors repaid their creditors. Um, these kind of obvious institutions of informal empire, these provide a kind of a rough-and-ready model in the 1920s for helping financially unstable states get their houses in order, right? And this becomes, you know, kind of precisely what the League of Nations does in the early 1920s in a, a select number of member states. It tries to effectively reproduce this form of foreign bondholder control so that bailout loans can be made to these unstable states, they can oversee these uh, uh thoroughgoing programs of austerity, get their financial houses in order, and then, you know, kind of gradually um uh return to normalcy, right? But this question arises in the nineteen twenties in states like Austria, and Germany, and Hungary, and elsewhere, is what would it mean uh for a European state to be treated um, uh to to have these tools of informal empire essentially applied to them. Again, there is this this real sense among contemporaries that these ways of disciplining debtors had been developed um, for non-European countries um, or countries uh, on the peripheries, what were understood to be the peripheries of Europe and the Balkans. And so what would it mean for a kind of, you know, a, a defeated state, a rump state, like Austria, but nonetheless a state that considered itself a kind of a center of European civilization to be treated like one of these um, debtor states from the 19th century. And as I try to show in the book, this kind of question became an explosive political question, right? Um, Admitting to this kind of discipline was seen as humiliating by both the left um, and the right and kind of intersected in complex ways with domestic political struggle in many states.
0: So why don't we get into what, you know, made these states angry. So what does the League of Nations actually do in order to regulate global financial flows? Uh, and just to just to reiterate, um, and, and I think this is a really important point, is that there weren't at the time global economic um, institutions that tried to regulate trade because it was just deemed too politically toxic. So um, why and how did they go about trying to regulate sort of these international financial flows?
1: Yeah, so I will say as a caveat that the League of Nations did establish an economic committee, and its principal task was to try to get, you know, to encourage member states to commit to a kind of broad reduction of tariffs, more or less. It just didn't prove to be particularly powerful. Um, When the League of Nations was being designed and debated in Paris, um, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, faced enormous political opposition um, from Congress and Republican members of Congress at home not to allow the League to ever develop the ability to weigh in on questions of U.S. tariffs, right? So from the moment it's born, the League is born with this kind of um, handicap, as it were. It, it, it simply is It's very, very difficult for it to develop effective powers over trade. But the same doesn't prove to be the case with finance, although the powers, the kind of powers of financial governance that it develops only end up being deployed in certain states. So I would say that Jamie, least, just a quick question. Yeah, sure.
0: Just a quick question. Is that because trade is much more easier to understand than sort of finance? Like finance is, is already a bit of a cult from the beginning. Do you think that had anything to do with it? I'm, I'm trying to maybe make a Foucaultian point about the yeah. nature of the knowledge involved, or is that just unrelated?
1: No, look it's a point that many people have made, particularly in reference to the Bretton Woods conference, right? There's this kind of argument that's been tossed around for a while that why did Bretton Woods succeed um, with monetary issues, whereas equivalent issue efforts in the realm of trade failed. I mean, I know that you had Christy Thornton on your podcast a few months ago, and, you know, she spoke about the failure of the International Trade Organization, right? And one of the things that people right. have said, right, is that, you know, it was easy for kind of voting publics to get their heads around issues of trade, um, easier, you know, it kind of incited more controversy. Whereas these technical Picayune matters of currencies and monetary standards, you know, people didn't really understand and they didn't care. Now, you know, I'm not sure necessarily how true this is. I think that there was, um, there was actually a lot of, uh, public controversy over the financial, over Bretton Woods and over the kind of monetary issues. There was a huge campaign. Just just a quick question
0: then, Jamie. When you say public controversy, you know, the the man working at the Ford plant, are we talking about the elite public here? I'm just honestly curious.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, well, first of all, there were efforts to organize um, workers in support of Bretton Woods, um, but more I'm speaking in in reference here to kind of, you know, the pages of major newspapers. Um, uh, In Congress itself, many civil society groups kind of turned out both for and against Bretton Woods. Um, so, you know, this is just to say, you know, that I don't think that we should necessarily <laughs> think that monetary issues were beyond the ken of, you know, the voting public or something like that. However, I do think it's indisputable. That there was, you know, trade was more politically explosive. Questions of trade had long been more politically explosive in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Though, again, remember, I mean, the gold standard itself. Even though the the cross of gold. Yeah, exactly. exactly, Yeah, 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 no, so, right. I mean, that's populist. Exactly. It's a perfect demonstration of the fact that obviously monetary issues um, could be political issues. Um, uh, but, right. um, and
0: it, and it feels so weird to us today because they're so outside the democratic, you know, space now, these sorts of high finance issues, but sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was just curious about that.
1: No, it's a great point. Um, um, so where were we?
0: <laughs> uh, so, so the, the league developing, yes, absolutely, um,
1: right. the sort of, managing and, and wh- how and where did they apply it and yeah. what was the effect of that yeah so the league ultimately develops its most kind of um, robust powers of financial governance primarily uh in central and eastern europe uh, uh uh and primarily in the some of the former central powers so austria and hungary uh, but also in greece um, and bulgaria And it develops these powers in a rather ad hoc fashion. This was not something that the kind of designers of the League of Nations had aimed to do when the body was being designed and debated during the war and in Paris in 1919. In part because the kind of power that the League ultimately did develop in these realms was, you know, it went much further than many people assumed would have been politically feasible. So essentially what the League does in somewhere like Austria in the early 1920s is that it facilitates financial stabilization loan to Austria, a uh, private loan by essentially convincing bankers that it will prevent Austria from being able to default on these loans. And the way that it does so is that it empowers a kind of a commissioner, what was called a commissioner general, essentially a kind of um, uh, economic functionary in Vienna to exercise veto power over uh, how the Austrian state would effectively spend its money, right? He's there on the ground to ensure that the Austrians commit to a very thoroughgoing program of austerity, which would involve, you know, laying off nearly 100,000 government employees, cutting subsidies to food, and kind of weighing in on some of the most fundamental domestic distributional questions of the post-war Austrian republic. I mean, it, it's no coincidence that this looks quite similar so, kind of IMF conditional loan from many decades later, right? You get the bailout loan in order to- Dollar diplomacy, yeah, right? Or dollar exactly or dollar diplomacy. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the kind of claims of the book is that the League of Nations is a kind of intermediary step, right? Or intermediate step between dollar diplomacy and the IMF, right? It's where you see this moment of transition from kind of formerly obvious tools of empire to a kind of internationalized form of informal financial imperialism that kind of sets the stage for the kind of conditional loans that the imf would later deploy I mean, this is really first experimented with um in the aftermath of the first world war so did the austrians like that no, they didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> what,
0: what, mean, what is Jack? Uh, so, what was the response to that on the ground, particularly from a, basically a post-imperial state that, as late as the nineteenth century, as you as you rightly gestured toward, but probably as late as the Austro-Prussian War uh, what is that, eighteen sixty-six, really thought that it was you know at the center of European yeah. arts and European culture. Yeah,
1: yeah. And no, I mean, I mean, on, on both the left and the right um, in Austria, this is seen as profoundly humiliating. I mean, I think it's also very important to recognize kind of, you know, who is in power. It was was a profoundly conservative uh, regime of a Catholic prelate, uh, Ignaz Seipel, um, uh, who faced uh, stiff opposition from the Social Democrats, one of the strongest left parties in Europe at the time, to the austerity that he sought to enact. Um, But even this this right government was extremely reluctant to... Essentially, kind of relinquish some of its economic sovereignty um, in exchange for this loan. The historian Nathan Marcus has written a really wonderful book um, about uh, interwar Austria and its financial kind of instability. And Marcus, I think, rightly has argued that the Austrian uh, government, at the same time, recognized that if it had the League of Nations enforcing this austerity on the ground, that this would be useful for neutralizing. The domestic opposition it faced, right? If, you know, the opponents of the austerity scheme could blame the league instead of the sitting government, then this would be much easier for the government to, you know, oversee these reforms. And again, this is, this remains a very common strategy, right? I mean, kind of one of the reasons why, you know, sitting governments turn to an institution like the IMF is to help them block opposition or to kind of make it easier for them to block opposition at home. the kind of austere reforms that elites in that country might want right so i think it would be a mistake to say that there's kind of uniform opposition on the ground to the terms of this loan it can be very useful for certain elites Um, at the same time it's politically extraordinarily explosive certainly in somewhere um, like post-war austria where again both the left and the right are grappling with this fact that you know in the eyes of its creditors austria has kind of fallen to the level of a state like China or, or um, um, the Ottoman Empire before 1914, kind of being bossed around, right, um, by these bankers on Wall Street and in the city of London. Do you see the rise at
0: this moment of the language of globalism, of sort of anti-Semitic, anti-globalist um, politics and propaganda?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, part of the opposition to this kind of um, uh, bailout loan in Austria comes from a a, a profoundly anti-Semitic far right. Um, You can see these currents of anti-Semitism in certain cases on the left as well. So that's absolutely there. It's not—it's not the kind of the only thing that's happening, I would say, but it's absolutely there. Hey everyone, it's Jake. Just a couple of quick plugs. First, our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. You can go sign up for the free list and also sign up for our free two-week trial for our bonus content, where you can go through the archive, check out our series, take part in discussion threads, and lots of more cool stuff. I also want to plug another podcast, Ones and Twos, with one Adam T- He's a foreign policy columnist, history professor, and popular author. He's got this encyclopedic knowledge about stuff from COVID, climate change, to weird food recipes. So you can join him along with foreign policy editor Cameron
0: Abadi as they unpack two numbers each week, one from the headlines and the other from way off the news. So search Ones and Twos, T-O-O-Z-E, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Thanks. So this is really important because it shows the development of these types of international economic governance regimes. What are some of the other tools that are developed in this interwar period that you think are particularly important to understanding the the origins of our own um, regime today?
1: Yeah, so I mean, one of the other things that my book looks at um, are the development of these these international mechanisms to regulate uh, commodity production. Um, and prices. I kind of refer to these as a kind of OPEC 1.0. I mean, they're not set up to deal with oil, but they nonetheless are the kind of precursors of an institution like OPEC today. OPEC is kind of thought of as this cartel, but it's actually an, an institute's an intergovernmental institution, right? It's an institution made up of states that collectively decide on um, and then try to enforce domestically, restrictions on the production of of oil. Well, this happened in the interwar period um, for the first time, really, with a series of other commodities, tin, rubber, wheat, um, and others. Uh, Another thing that my book looks at is the uh, uh, how international institutions first attempted to channel capital into programs of international development. We think of development kind of either as a US led Cold War initiative that really gets going under the Truman administration, or, you know, some see it as originating in kind of new practices of empire. Um, The British and French empires attempting to kind of develop their colonies either to provide a new means of legitimating colonial empire or of kind of, you know, for this, you know, to redound to the benefit of the metropole. But actually the League of Nations did attempt to initiate a few international development schemes in the 1920s and early 1930s. So that's another context of the book. And then the final kind of, you know, thing that the book gets into is the birth of the bank for international settlements, which obviously still exists to this day and which involved this attempt, uh, to institutionalize the cooperation of central banks, uh, many of which were at that moment engaged in fierce attempts to remove themselves from government control or to defend their political autonomy. So so one context here that I think remains very relevant today is is how this kind of the question and problem of central bank independence becomes key to uh, these attempts to govern the world economy. So
0: those are, are all really interesting. So why don't we just dig down on them a little bit in turn? And could you could you talk maybe a little bit about this sort of not cartel but intergovernmental institution that you focus on in the book as it, it relates to tin?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh uh in the, So again, what's the problem? Yeah. Who's involved? Yeah, yeah. So the interwar period was a period that saw enormous fluctuations in the prices of most major commodities traded on global markets. You see prices shooting up dramatically during the first world war and in its aftermath, then crashing precipitously in the early 1920s, making a kind of limited recovery over the second half of the 1920s, and then continuing to, or, you know, beginning to fall again before the depression. Then the depression, you know, the the floor falls out. These goods, their, their prices collapse. And this is seen at the time as a major problem. Um, for, an, uh, uh, for the British Empire, for example, um, the, the empire relies on the production and exchange of, of commodities um, for many different purposes, not only you know, to kind of get raw materials to feed into British factories, uh, but also to maintain the value of sterling, to, to pay off war debts to the United States. So maintaining commodity prices is crucial for the overall or seem to be crucial as for the, for the overall financial stability of the British Empire itself. So during the 1920s and then with accelerated speed and enthusiasm in the early 1930s, there are various attempts to essentially get uh, uh, governments where uh, 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 governments, you know, that you know, uh where, you know, or sorry, countries, representatives of countries where these commodities are produced to kind of team up, right? Um, And to try to essentially exercise some control over the prices of these goods. And the way that they would do this is, you know, it's similar to the way that OPEC operates now. You get each member, each signatory to the scheme to agree to restrict production of the good in question. And this would have the effect of raising its price, right? The less of it that's traded on global markets, um the higher um, its price is going to be. So what I argue in the book is that the first kind of real powerful and successful attempt to do this comes with the uh, with tin. Kind of a a rather unremarkable medal, um, but a medal that was nonetheless. Um, uh, hey,
0: we're funded by Big Ten. Uh, yeah, well, just just want to tell our bosses that we don't agree. Uh, Interviewed guests are do not reflect American prestige's position.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean uh, canned foods are crucial to the survival of academics. Um, so tin, you're right, it's a kind of an unremarkable metal, but it's a metal that's produced overwhelmingly within the bounds of the British Empire. Um, it's, Malaya, right? Yeah, Malaya, absolutely. Malaya. Nigeria, um, also in the Dutch East Indies. And it's a good uh, where this is 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 first experimented with this new form of international control. It's, it's very quickly followed by a similar arrangement to govern the uh, production of rubber, another good that is uh, produced um, very heavily in Southeast Asia, um, in Malaya, and the Dutch East Indies as well. Um, And then over the 1930s, while these other kind of international schemes are falling apart, right, you know, the kind of attempts to govern the world economy are failing, the world economy is in a tailspin, so on and so forth, nonetheless, you see the elaboration of more and more of these intergovernmental commodity organizations, some more effective than others, but nonetheless um, a variety of these to deal with goods um like wheat copper and and others
0: and these had never before existed in history or so this is an institutional innovation that basically provides the model for for OPEC
1: well there had been some halting attempts the most famous. Yeah, there had been some halting attempts in the nineteen twenties, for example, to create an a, a, an international mechanism for dealing with rubber, for example, but this uh, uh, it, it never was put onto multilateral level, right? The the British, for example, had tried desperately to get the Dutch to agree to a rubber control scheme, but the Dutch didn't, and it fell apart very quickly. Um, this generated enormous opposition in the United States because the United States was not a major producer of rubber. Um, so there, again, there's this kind of halting failed attempts. Um, before this, of course, there had existed many international cartels that had you know, attempted to divide up markets or control um, the exchange of, of various commodities, um, but these were different, right? I mean, these were kind of quote-unquote gentlemen's agreements between private firms. Sometimes they had the backing of states, but it wasn't, you know, these didn't result in actual intergovernmental organizations where the powers of state and so on and so forth could be deployed. So this was an institutional innovation, absolutely.
0: So what does that suggest to you about the course of global capitalism, or, or why is that such an important moment in this transition?
1: Well, I mean, one thing I think that it shows is that from the very get-go, governing the world economy was not only going to involve dealing with the abstractions of finance, of lending, of central banking, but was also going to deal with stuff, right? It was going to deal with the kind of very material rudiments that make up uh, industrial production. And the economic livelihoods of, 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 you know, people around the world, right? Uh, this was certainly the case during the First World War. Um, the first, you know, kind of real intergovernmental institutions, economic institutions were set up to deal with the supply of raw materials and agricultural goods um, during the war. And this remains a very powerful model. I mean, many of the intergovernmental uh, commodity organizations that were set up in the interwar period persisted long afterwards, right? In in one form or another, this tin control scheme, um, it lasts with few interruptions, actually up until the mid-1980s. I mean, OPEC is kind of anomalous in many ways because it's the last one standing. Um, And it shows the kind of uh, continued um, importance of, of, of oil, the fact that this kind of quite old, Um, form of international cooperation continues to exist with oil when it doesn't with other goods.
0: Was there resistance to this? I imagine there was resistance within the colonized world to this sort of uh, attempt to, to regulate tin?
1: Yeah, the resistance, it generated enormous resistance. Uh, One thing, uh, one side of resistance was from the U.S. state. Um, The U.S. uh, uh, Which is
0: something you emphasize in your book. You talk, I think, very smartly. When you talk about resistance, oftentimes we assume from below, but in, in this case, it's oftentimes governments and quite powerful elites.
1: Yeah exactly. I mean the resistance that like kind of probably the most powerful side of resistance was the US state. I mean the U- United States was not a major producer of tin or rubber so the creation of these you know schemes to effectively kind of you know inflate the prices of these two goods you can imagine why it was unpopular in the united states both tin and rubber are major strategic raw materials so if the u.s you know suddenly has to pay more for these goods that you know are are vital for you know military preparation then obviously this was going to generate hostility um this the schemes also generate resistance among businesses that they will deleteriously affect right i mean some businesses actually benefit when commodity prices fall if they can kind of ride out that period of falling prices it'll put their competitors out of business and then they can kind of re-emerge at the end of it um, to capitalize right so so there was huge amount of capitalist opposition actually or kind of intra-capitalist competition over these schemes and i mean another thing was that obviously if you you know, what a production restriction involves is it essentially involves closing down mines, right? Or kind of shutting down business. And and that would obviously generate unemployment and generate resistance on those grounds as well. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons why colonial governments were, were uh, initially interested in these kinds of control schemes was because they thought that over the long run, if they kind of put measures in place to, you know, uh, raise the prices of goods that this would, you know, help with unemployment over the long term, right. But in the short term, it would kind of worsen the problem. So you see opposition to it as well developing among those kind of uh, that it would throw out of work.
0: So why don't we turn um, to the economic development part, because that's really interesting, because as you well know, there's been enormous amount of literature on economic development in the Cold War, um, particularly focused on efforts by the United States during the Cold War, even though there have been other books like Eckblad in particular that tries to uh, trace it back further. But what's... Uh, the story of economic development that you trace in The Meddlers.
1: Yeah. So the thing I'm trying to look at here, again, I I, I agree completely. There's a a ton of literature on this, Um, some of it emphasizing the kind of US side of the story, the Cold War side of the story, some of it emphasizing more the European um, imperial side of the story. But really, what I try to look at here is how development became a distinct problem for international institutions in the interwar period. Um, And this is something that hasn't achieved as much attention. Um, and I look at these two quite different, but uh, to my mind, quite um, interesting and revealing um, experiments in doing what we would clearly recognize today as, as forms of development. Um, the first is in early 1920s Greece, where the League of Nations is called in to help facilitate a major loan to the Greek state to help uh, uh, it uh, essentially settle over a million Greek Orthodox refugees into housing into productive work, into agricultural work or you know, small scale manufacturing. Um, the second, uh, context is, uh, when the League of Nations was called in to help the nationalist government, um, of China to oversee a series of projects in, uh, agricultural development, um, infrastructure building, um, industrial development, a kind of a, a set of schemes of technical assistance, um, in the early 1930s. So the thing I'm trying to do by looking at these two contexts is to try to figure out how people at the time understood the political stakes of having an international institution or having kind of representatives or officials from an international institution get very deeply involved in uh, uh, all of these kind of different kinds of domestic economic issues, of infrastructure building, of land reform, And how uh, kind of politically difficult it proved to be. I mean, as long as, uh, you know, Wall Street and the City of London were involved in making the loans, they set quite, you know, they they always had, uh, they always put strings attached to the loans, right? And as uh, many states attempted to navigate this question of, you know, what would be the potential costs to our autonomy of us accepting these development loans, this kind of creates a whole new set of, of complex questions. And ultimately, at the League of Nations, you see this turn among some people at the League to say, look, development is just too difficult. It raises too many controversial questions. How could we actually expect to oversee these development loans? And it's almost shelved, right? So you have these anomalous projects that I think in many ways are originary, but are, you know, they're ad hoc. Development does not become this international kind of project fully until the 1940s and after. Do you
0: think that suggests development needs hegemony, that you kind of need a hegemon in order to pursue these projects? Or what do you think it suggests? That was a bit of a leading question.
1: (laughs) That's a good question. I mean, I think it requires a lot of liquidity. Um, I think it requires um, uh, countries to kind of be, right, to be willing to accept the terms that financial institutions will place on the loans and the kind of less onerous those terms can be, um, the more likely they are to accept it. I mean, this was really one of the things that the designers of the World Bank thought spoke in its favor. They thought that the World Bank actually would be less interventionist than things that had come before it, right? That states would kind of happily turn to the World Bank because it wouldn't demand them to give up you know, sources of public revenue in exchange for loans. Of course, the World Bank is also designed, you know, kind of first and foremost to oversee European reconstruction, right? I mean, it's originally the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, so... Which still exists, I believe. It's as a subsidiary of the World Bank, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, kind of reconstruction after a devastating global war is, you know, kind of an obvious um, spur for these efforts. And the same was not the case after the First World War. Obviously, the First World War was destructive, um, enormously destructive in uh, Europe, in the former Ottoman Empire, um, and in other places. But it, it didn't generate the same sense of urgency for actual kind of physical reconstruction. Financial reconstruction was another thing.
0: So why don't we turn to the last mechanism that you focus on in your book, which is central bank independence. And so, um, and this is something that that I think has become recently a pretty, or at least somewhat popular topic on the left, at least a de-democratization of macroeconomic and financial policy. So I think it, it's really important. So what is the story that you tell in your book?
1: Yeah, so what I look at in the book is this context in the 1920s and early 1930s when the kind of push for central bank independence as we know it really kind of takes off as almost a transnational movement um, in its own right of bankers, who many of whom tried to claw back the autonomy they felt they had lost during the First World War when they'd been corralled into financing the costs of the war. So the kind of paradigmatic case of this is the Bank of England, which before the First World War, you know certainly by the end of the 19th century had come to enjoy you know a real kind of de facto sense of autonomy there wasn't the same kind of formal rules about central bank independence but nonetheless there was a sense in which the bank um could act free from the day-to-day interference of politicians later this member of the the bank of england referred to this as you know the, the british treasury had no more right to tell the Bank of England how to run monetary policy, then it had the right to tell the bank how to what color to paint its front door, right? Um, now, this shouldn't be exaggerated. This kind of the degree of independence shouldn't be exaggerated, but nonetheless, the First World War does see a real ch- uh, change in the state of affairs and in the relationship of the British Treasury and the Bank of England. So in 1920, when the most powerful governor in the history of the Bank of England um, assumes the reign of, of power, Montague Norman, he attempts to kind of, you know, as I said, claw back this autonomy. And he kind of puts himself at the head, you know, at the vanguard of this movement to get other central banks to much more kind of forcefully defend their autonomy from government control. He also, and the Bank of England, also plays a major role in, in helping, sometimes via the League of Nations, in helping countries set up new central banks that would be given an extraordinary degree of independence. So this kind of ties back to the context of Austria. One of the things that the League of Nations um, scheme in Austria involved was uh, uh, the guarantees that the Austrian central bank would be able to act free from day-to-day political interference, a kind of degree of independence that many other central banks um, themselves um, didn't actually enjoy in practice. So this becomes relevant to the Foundation for the Bank for International Settlements because the major players involved all insist that this new international banking institution needs to be completely autonomous from the control of governments. But you can imagine how controversial this would be um, for those governments, right? Um, creating this international institution that may be able to develop powers over domestic banking questions, but then not being able to check its decisions at all, right? So the context that my book explores here is really this kind of extraordinarily explosive political questions of how can you create an international banking institution that might be able to develop real powers, that might be able to control significant sums of capital, um, while at the same time, you know, allowing it to operate free from the control of treasuries or foreign offices or other branches of governments. And so what was the resistance that that engendered? Well, you see political parties in various countries, for example, labor in the United Kingdom, initially in 1929, 1930, posing quite significant opposition, saying we can't we can't kind of give up control, right? I mean, in, in Britain, the politics of central in de- bank independence had become quite fraught after 1925, when the pound is returned to gold, resulting in a quite a severe period of unemployment um, afterwards. And there was a growing sense among many that, you know, the Bank of England kind of couldn't simply be allowed to operate free of government control anymore. Um, in France, you see similar, um, worries about what it would mean, um, for the French economy if the Bank of France was kind of able to join this institution that the French government couldn't check. Um, and, uh, again, I mean, you can imagine why, uh, governments were very wary of this institution in many places, particularly, um, after having seen or after, after, you know, increasingly coming to see how maintaining the gold standard could be quite disastrous for countries.
0: So, Jamie, we've been going a while, and I'd like to end on this question, um, which is the major transition that we—not uh, a transition, but w- w- I think the larger kind of macro phenomenon that your book traces—is the—and as you say, right, this isn't this is my insight, but the impinging on sovereignty. Yeah. So, what do you think people who are listening to this should take away from your argument of the book, and and, and what should they understand um, about? thing that you trace and how it relates to what they're involved with today
1: yeah so i would say that you know the uh, institution like the international monetary fund and the kind of powers that it has uh, been able to exercise over domestic economies you know i think we need to see this power of conditional lending of structural adjustment as having quite a, a long history that precedes the actual foundation of the imf you know one of the real kind of aims of the book is to show how this kind of highly intrusive um, form of global governance um, has its roots in this period of informal empire of the 19th century. And I know, you know, historians always want to show the imperial roots of this and the imperial roots of that. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, that's a good project. Obviously, I'm sympathetic to that. But I think in this case, there are, you know, kind of real normative questions that it raises. I mean, we continue to exist in a world where the most powerful institution of global economic governance operates in ways that are highly reminiscent um, of these earlier um, imperial arrangements. And they're not just reminiscent, right? I mean, the point of the book is to show how they descended directly from them. Now, there's a lot of kind of, or there's some enthusiasm right now for reforming the IMF. Um, the IMF is a different institution, um, than it was in the 1990s to a certain extent. Um, but th- this kind of conditionality has not gone away, right? Um, the, during the, during the kind of the height of the COVID economic crisis of 2020, the series of loans that the IMF made, you know the vast vast majority of, of them came with the same old demands for austerity even though IMF officials have emphasized that the institution has you know is trying to move away from some of these practices that brought it into such disrepute in the in the late 1990s so i think if we see you know the the way in which global economic governance operates today in terms of this much older kind of series of problems of how do you square the powers of international financial institutions with sovereignty that we can kind of, I don't know, perhaps think creatively about new paths forward and how we might actually begin to design new institutions or, or, or ambitiously reform existing institutions to kind of get past this imperial baggage.
0: Jamie Martin, thank you so much. Everyone go pick up The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance, which was just released. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.